This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, it's President's Day or George Washington's birthday observed. What's appropriate? We will get into this in about a half hour with presidential historian Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. Very much looking forward to talking with her about what this holiday is, how it got to be what it is, and George Washington. Meantime, uh, someone that's no slouch when it comes to history himself, Richard Bay, veteran TV and radio talk show host, and uh, the host of the Richard Bay Talk podcast, which is available on the YouTube and wherever podcast is available, is uh, kind enough to join me in studio. We're going to take your calls in just a moment. Richard, as long as you brought up history... I mean, I want to give him a plug, and you should have him as a guest. There's a guy named Bruce Carlson who has a uh, uh, um, a podcast called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, and he covers every. I learn something every time I listen that's to a, him. That's a great – you know, maybe you recommended this to me, yeah. or I, I've heard someone else that I respect uh, tell me about this. I'll check it out. Yeah, and when I, when I come to town, I usually take him out to dinner because – uh, he's not employed right now except for the podcast, and that's my way of supporting his podcast. And it's ter- – I learn something every time I listen to I, it. I will uh, definitely give it a listen and, and invite him on the program. Now, as you alluded to, you spent you know, the bulk of your life as a New Yorker. These days you're living in Florida, but you still come up to New York pretty regularly. Uh, usually you get a lot of uh, cultural and uh, various New York experiences that they don't have down there in Florida – uh, in when you're up here visiting. What have you done on this I, trip? I saw two plays. One of them, the title was the most provocative thing about the play. It's called Russian Troll Farm. Mm. And it's set in the IRA um, um, dissemina- internet dissemination information uh, during the 2016 election with all these Russians who are trying to get trying to depress the, the black vote and trying to get people to fight with each other. And Christine Lottie, who's a wonderful actress. In fact, this was the best part of the play. Drama? Comedy? Dramedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Christine Lottie, uh, you know, she's now like 71 or so. But she had this monologue that was just beautiful, talking about her life in relationship to the government from Stalin to uh, communism to Gorbachev to uh, Putin mm. and how she acclimated to each one of those things and it was a beautiful monologue the second thing i've been dying to see it it's well one how, of, how was the play i just said it wasn't uh, very the title good. was the best part I guess. Right. okay it was pretty turgid before and then she had this monologue and i went wow that was beautiful she mm-hmm. did a great job and then at the end it was sort of like oh hillary lost and trump is up there and we're all supposed to have this catharsis you know they have video screens and and video screens throughout the thing, and we're all supposed to go, oh, boo-hoo, boo-hoo. It's, well, it, it's over. It happened. Right. Years That's ago. it. Right. right, right. So the second thing, this play I've been dying to see. I've entered the lottery every time I come to New York. It's one of my favorite plays. I saw it at City Center in 2012, and it brought me to tears at the end. It's a Stephen Sondheim musical called Merrily We Roll Along. Mm. And what it is is... It starts off in seven, 1976 and then works its every year it goes backwards until you see the the three friends who are the principal characters 
full of idealism. The very last scene is them talking about they're looking they're on the rooftop of a tenement and they're all poor and they've all just come to New York from College of the Army and they're watching Sputnik for the first time. They all went up there because they heard it was going overhead and they're going, This is our time. Look what's happening. It's going to be a you know, a wonderful world that we're going and they're all very talented people. But you see by the you know, from the start of the play that one of them has sold out, one of them has become an alcoholic and uh, and very depressed. And it's kind of cool that the story's backwards. The though. story's backwards, yeah. And so I wanted to see it on Broadway. Tickets were like four hundred and fifty dollars. It's the highest grossing show on Broadway. It's got Daniel uh, Radcliffe. Wow. And um, what's the other guy? Uh, uh, Gref Grof, who's also a big star, was in Springs Awakening, and. Uh, I thought, oh, my God, I really want to see this, but I'm not going to spend $400. So on Super Bowl Sunday, I went there, and I figured, who's going to go to the Broadway show on Super Bowl Sunday? Well, I went there. They were sold out. And then somebody shouted from the back of the ticket booth, we have one that opened up. So I got an orchestra seat for $199, the most I've ever paid. But I was disappointed because – the three principal actors are terrific, but it's more like a fan concert. I mean, Daniel Radcliffe comes out, the audience goes crazy. Uh, Jonathan Grafe comes out, they go crazy. Daniel Radcliffe does a leap into the air, and they go, which is totally out of character. It, it the production didn't move me at all. So definitely not worth four hundred bucks. Well, I, if if you're a big fan of Daniel Radcliffe, yeah, go see it. But I um. You know, I, I when I go to the theater, I want to feel the hairs on the back of my mm-hmm. neck stand up. I, when I saw Leopoldstadt, for instance, I keeled over crying. The woman in front of me said, are you all right? And she handed me a tissue. I couldn't stop crying. I was just in London. I saw Sunset Boulevard, the production that's coming here. When it was over, I walked out of the theater Chanting, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And you'd God. seen Sunset Boulevard before, and, I'd and seen it was it. still. This that is, no, this is a completely different uh, oh, really? interpretation of Sunset. It's like you're tra- trapped in the mind of a schizophrenic, of a delusional oh, schizophrenic. A, that sounds terrific. All right, a lot of people very eager to chat with you. 800 848 9222. Richard Bay is here. Mary is in Pennsylvania. What's on your mind, Mary? Hi, you were talking about Fannie Willis, and I was wondering about all that laundering of money. But what I really wanted to ask was, what, why was she wearing her dress backwards? You know what? I wish I, one of the lawyers had brought that up because that's a reason to disqualify her. That would have been that really ha- is pertinent and uh, is relevant to the facts of the case that are going on in terms of these indictments. Thank you for bringing that up. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. What's on your mind, Robert? Hi, Frank. Uh, Basing your net worth on market value of property, in part, beside what other monies you have, is not fraud. When a realtor, a licensed third party, says, okay, if you were bringing your property to market now, you would likely get whatever number of millions for it. 
I, that, that might be true, but it doesn't make a 10,000-square-foot apartment magically uh, zoom into 33,000 square feet. And it doesn't make Mar-a-Lago worth $729 million, okay? The exaggeration, not only of its net worth, but the size of the property, the potential uh, 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 market value was so exaggerated. It was never mentioned when he went to the bank that that Mar-a-Lago is actually a social club. It's 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 his residence, but it under under Florida state law, it can never be used as anything other than a social club. That's the law, and it's also one thing to tell the bank one thing and then tell the IRS mm-hmm. something completely different. Uh, you know, someone emailed me this question. I don't know if you heard any of the discussion that uh, Dominic Carter and I had, but uh, Tom, uh, listening to California, uh, asks if you agree with what Dominic said, that far-left politicians bear uh, some of the responsibility for cops and paramedics being being shot at. Come on. Are you kidding? No. So no, needless no, to say, the answer is no, no. No, no. Okay. 800-848-9222. Well, um, what would you do about, say, the uh, rising tide of gun violence that we're seeing in different cities, including in cities that, in some cases, not not applicable to Kansas City, but in other places that do have pretty strict existing gun restrictions? Well, I, th- I think one of the things is, uh, of course, the assault weapons ban, and people are going to say there's no such thing as an assault weapon, uh, but we do know what we're talking about. I've shot an AR-15 uh, that is not uh, fully automatic. It's semi-automatic, and that's supposedly the difference. But, I, you know, I'm pretty much blind as a bat. And with that red dot and pulling the trigger, you go boom, 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 boom. I mean, that gun was designed for nothing other than military purposes. It's not a hunting gun. It's not a gun to protect you in your house. And this whole argument that that the people must be armed with this military-style gun so they can overthrow a tyrannical government is laughable because the militias— we're, are under the control of the tyrannical government, the alleged tyrannical government. It's the president who can call out the National Guard. Right, or the governor. Right. 800-848-9222. Larry's in Brooklyn. What's on your mind, Larry? <clears throat> yes, hi, uh, Richard. I like your uh, um, um, analogy about uh, in World War II, how we didn't care about the civilians that were being bombed. But I feel that it's kind of interesting how we're, how we're willing as a society to judge, um, you know, the people that supported slavery, but when, but will use the bombing of civilian areas as an analogy as to why Israel is not doing anything wrong. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, when, when you when you ride the subway and you see migrant children selling M&M candies just to survive, to make pennies to survive, I think it kind of casts slavery in a good light. What? Slaves were taken Come care on. of. Come on, Larry. Well, I mean, that's that's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, that's that's. I mean, I, I don't even know that it requires much of a response. It's so <laughs> it's so absurd. By the way, did you get vomited on on the subway recently? Yes. <laughs> what happened there? I was coming back from seeing the merrily we roll along. I'm on the subway. I'm holding on to the, uh, the you know the bars, and there are two girls sitting in front of me. 
And one of them, you should. I took a picture of her afterwards. One of them goes full on Linda Blair. Oh. I'm not saying she didn't just vomit on herself. It came shooting out of her mouth vomit. like a fire hose all over my leather coat. Brand new pants that I've only worn twice. I'm covered with vomit. I leaned over and I said, are, are you all right? Are you sick? And she just, it was Super Bowl Sunday, remember? So she goes, I've never been this drunk in my whole life. And then they both burst out laughing. Oh. That's what pissed. Can I say that? Yeah, good, go it ahead. pissed me. I can understand that. Um, uh, do, were they younger? Yeah, yeah, they were like early 20s. Oh, gee, what would you have done if that had happened on the way to the theater? That's what I, I've thought of that. I know. Could you imagine me going to the theater? I'd have a whole road of myself. My goodness. 800-848-9222. Chris is on Long Island. Hi, Chris. Hey, guys. Uh, I would love to get Richard on Cats at Night. Uh, that would be great radio. They should invite him on. And you can hear all the legal experts, and I listen to it all the time. Can someone explain this to me, Richard? Maybe you can. When Why doesn't the bank go and see that it's not 30,000 feet? They see it's 10000 a professional. Whenever I've had loans, ever, they always check you out personally. They send someone here. They don't just give you the money willy-nilly. So what I'm saying is, where, where was the bank's responsibility in going and saying, hey, wait, 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 wait. This isn't 10000 feet. Right. I mean, this isn't very you may You may have a point in terms of the bank's responsibility, but yeah. it's also Trump's responsibility under the law not to say a 10,000-foot, square-foot apartment is really 33,000 square feet. I mean, that's, right. you know, yeah, the bank should... We Listen, do you remember 2009? The, the banks should be more cautious about lending their money or, or giving out mortgages. That's what Dodd-Frank was about. In fact, I'm not sure whether this law is somehow associated with Dodd-Frank. Uh, but that was, those were the laws they were trying to pass, uh, you know, in terms of making the banks more responsible. And there were a lot of people who tried to oppose Dod- Dodd-Frank. So, so yeah. your view is no, no. even if the banks did something wrong, that doesn't that yeah, doesn't excuse Trump not. doing something. By the way, it was very interesting over the weekend. Like maybe it was on Friday. Governor Kathy Hochul had to reassure the business community: "Don't worry, we're not going to be cracking down. You don't have to leave the state. <laughs> this basically is just for Trump. It's not for you. Nobody well, no, else. Anybody, but you know, listen. If there's another example of such egregious." Exaggeration. You know what? Here's is well. I suspect if they started looking at other people's sure. exaggerations, the way that Letitia James has looked at Donald Trump's, they might find. Well, listen. Some when you get credit cards, when you get credit cards, they ask you, "What is your yearly income?" Right. If you put down a, if you put down three hundred thousand dollars a year, and you only make seventy thousand. The credit card company doesn't come and look for your uh, W-2 forms. And you know what? They'll give you a much higher line of credit. Speaking of uh, prices, just going back to the theater conversation a second ago, it does seem – I know there's the TKTS booth. I know there's lotteries and other things. And there's today's ticks, but, which but is But it a great does app, seem yeah. like the ability to go to Broadway shows on a regular basis is increasingly out of reach for a lot of middle-class People, well, I mean, a lot of middle class people. The woman that was right in front of me on the line, I, mean, I gasped. She laid out her credit card. 
for $950 for tickets. Wow. I mean, come on. You used to be able to buy a car for $950. Robert's in Manhattan. Hi, Robert. Good morning, gentlemen. Great conversation. Richard, let me ask you a question. I know that this is a society where we love to mock people. I've given a new name to the former president. He is Captain Mock. (laughs) Uh, Look, he mocked John McCain. He mocked Elizabeth Warren. But what he did to Nikki Haley, and I would never vote for her because I'm not a Republican. But what he did to her in South Carolina shocked me beyond belief. Here's a woman whose husband is somewhere off in Africa doing his job as a veteran, and he mocked, where's her husband? Where's her husband? I, what, what is this about him? Is he, I don't want to say, is he loony kazuni? Is he a wackadoodle? But how do you mock a veteran and not, get, and not have the Republicans come down on him for this? I am shocked. Well, the Republicans have given him a lot of leeway over a lot of, how could you say, I'm going to tell Putin to do whatever the hell he wants if a country doesn't spend a specified amount on self-defense. I'm going to tell him to invade Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. How do Republicans sit back and say, this is loony? You yeah, know? I mean, I, I guess it goes to uh, that But old... here's another one, and we've forgotten about it. I, was it I, 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 I may be wrong. Was it Niger? Where the, four American soldiers, when Trump was president, were ambushed by Islamic terrorists. One of them was tortured before he died, dismembered, and and eventually we recovered the bodies. And remember, when Trump spoke to the widow, he said, you know, he knew what he was getting into. That's what you say to a widow? Yeah, I mean, I don't think uh, I don't think even Trump's staunchest defenders would uh, give him high marks for tact in uh, situations like that. Ernesto is in Massachusetts. Hi, Ernesto. Hi, how you doing? Hey. I, I'm a big Richard Bay fan. <laughs> and, uh, I remember your shows in the early 2000s. I just want your take on, you know, on Hunter Biden. Do you think that they're going soft on him because he's the president's son? They're not because going soft on that. him. He's charged with, he's got indictments that are very serious indictments at this point in time. But everybody says, they're talking about Trump. They're going, where's the victim? Where's the victim? Well, so Hunter Biden got a gun. He got a gun. It was thrown away a week later into the garbage. Where's the victim there? Hunter Biden paid back the taxes that he owed. Where's the victim? Where's the victim? And I'm not trying to say that Hunter Biden shouldn't be charged with something. But, uh, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. There's no victim there. And listen, Hunter Biden obviously was a screwed up guy. (laughs) Screwed up guy. There are people that I love who are screwed up. But I still love them. And, uh, you know, I, I, won't, I don't want to get into my family history, but, uh, you know, I, I, I have the a... Man, the man is sick. He has a disease. That's that's true. I agree. Richard will not speak ill of anyone that went to Yale. Any fellow Yale alumni are, are <laughs> off limits. Did off Hunter limits. Biden Ernesto. go to Yale? Yeah, he got his law degree from Yale. Uh, Jesus, he was, he, in, was he in the same class as Kelly McEnany <laughs> or Clarence Stop? You know what? No, I Kelly went... McEnany, I think, went to Harvard. Oh, Harvard, you're right. Yeah. But listen, when I went to Yale, I used to eat at the law school commissary because they had the best food. And I didn't realize this until year, years later. But when I was at Yale, 
Hillary was there. Bill Clinton was there. Clarence Thomas was there. We could have all been wow. eating but in the John same, Bolton, right? Yeah. Uh, this, Michael Medved. Yeah. The same dining room. That's wild. Uh, that's very funny. We we'll squeeze in one more call here because, because then we have uh, Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky waiting in the wings. We're going to talk about George Washington and more. Chris is in the Catskills. Hey, Chris. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Richard, hey. I was watching your program sometime. I wouldn't say I'm trying to figure the year. I want to say like 1993. And there was a lot of attractive women in your audience. <laughs> and I'm assuming it was like Newark, New Jersey or Secaucus, Secaucus New Jersey. Secaucus, yes. And, uh, and you, you were asking them to pick out the most handsome men in the audience that they would want to date. It, had you yourself ever had any uh, Jerry Springer type success with uh, with women in the audience or, or people that were guests. Now that's a good program. question. There you go. No, no, no. I always think it's not, it's not the place to, and even there were interns. Well, I, interns in, is in, a different fact, situation. No, but no, you cannot, you can God, here Unless I am you, censoring myself yeah. again. You cannot have sexual relationships or a romantic relationship with an intern. Now, when I did evening magazine at channel nine, there was a young lady there who I'm still friendly with. She's married. I went, uh, did I go to her? I think I went to her first wedding. Now she's married. We're still very good friends. I saw her in New York uh, fairly recently. All right, so she was an intern. Beautiful girl, student at William Patterson. And I was, um, you know, I'm about 10 years older than her. So we we were on Evening Magazine, and, and she would always be flirtatious, and I was very appreciative and then one day we were all called into a room and they said, Evening Magazine is going out of production. It's over. So as we're leaving, I'll never forget this. She turned to me and said, how do you feel about this? And I said, well, there's a good thing and a bad thing about it. And she said, what's, what's the bad thing? I said, I, I won't get paid for Evening Magazine. It was the easiest gig in the world. And she said, what's the good thing? And we were going through revolving doors out of the Channel 9 studio. I said, the good thing is I can ask you out to go to dinner now. <laughs> and I said, she, I said, would you like to do that? And she said, I would love to. You're a charmer. My goodness. <laughs> All right. I'm going to talk with Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky in just a okay. moment. Richard, this has been a lot of fun. Oh, Let's my, do this again great. next time you're in town. And let me just finish this broadcast by saying, you won't have Dick Bay to kick around anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Bay, uh, find him on the YouTube. Just search Richard Bay Talk. That's B-E-Y Talk. You can also just search Richard Bay on Facebook. There's a lot of great content on there, including this photo of this uh, lady that vomited all over herself. Uh, we'll talk George Washington and more straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, a lot of you might be up listening today, and you're not typically up at this hour because you may have the day off today. You may have the day off because it's President's Day. You may have the day off because it's George Washington's birthday observed. Now, imagine my surprise. I look through the registry of federal holidays. I don't see a President's Day. Where did this President's Day tradition 
come from? Why do some places celebrate it? Why do some places not? Where do you put the apostrophe anyway? Are we celebrating all presidents or is it just Washington and Lincoln? And was Washington all that great to begin with? Someone who may have uh, the answer to some of those questions is Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky, a presidential historian and the author of the award-winning book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. There are a few people that know more about George Washington than she does. Dr. Shervinsky, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Happy President's Day, or should I say George Washington's birthday observed? Well, happy Washington's birthday observed to you. Thank you for having me. So what is the story? What is today? Yeah, so it's actually, you know, it's such a a truly American Mm -hmm. story because Americans started celebrating Washington's birthday before the Constitution even existed. Uh, Americans were used to celebrating the king's birthday in the the 18th century. And after they declared independence, obviously, that would have been considered a little bit inappropriate. And so they basically, soldiers in the Continental Army, swapped out celebrations for the king's birthday for Washington's birthday. And that continued up through the time he was president. And then after he left office, much, I should say, to the chagrin of his successor, John Adams, who felt that it wasn't really appropriate to celebrate the birthday of an average citizen, which Washington was once he left office. Hmm. So it really started from the very beginning and then continued really at sort of a local or state level. There was no national celebration that really depended on the community. And that was the case until the 1880s. And at that point, a lot of at least northern states had also started celebrating Lincoln's birthday. Some southern states celebrated Jefferson's birthday. And so in the 1880s, the country actually passed a bill recognizing Washington's birthday as an official holiday. And then in 1970, when the government was trying to sort of create a more uniform schedule to have holidays be on Mondays so that people could travel and have long weekends, they decided to make the official observance of President's Day, basically meaning Washington and Lincoln's birthdays, the third Monday in February, because it would be kind of in between the two. And it sort of just got smushed into this President's Day concept, even though most people aren't really all that interested in celebrating like a Franklin Pierce or a James Buchanan. Well, so that that's my question. With that 1970 observation of President's Day, we're celebrating all the presidents from uh, John Tyler to William Henry Harrison and everybody else, all uh, 45 people that have been president? Well, technically, actually, the holiday is still Washington's birthday. So technically, we're only really celebrating Washington and Lincoln because that was the impetus behind the holiday. And Nixon apparently at one point had toyed around with an executive order to make it President's Day with the apostrophe after the S to include all of them. But there was kind of an uproar about that, recognizing that not everyone (laughs) is Washington and Lincoln. So, you know, we kind of call it President's Day. But actually, I think the best thing we can do is see it as a moment to reflect on the great moments of the presidency and maybe also remember that there are some not so great moments, too. Got it. Well, that's why I love interviewing great presidential historians like you, because we're going to ask you about some of those great moments and not so great moments. So even though the there's no official President's Day holiday, do we have an idea of how many states actually celebrate 
President's Day in addition to the holiday of either Washington's birthday or Washington and Lincoln's birthday? So it is, of course, a a federal holiday. So any of the employees at the state level who recognize federal holidays generally get that day off as well. But then each state can kind of do their own thing. So Mm -hmm. most states generally keep it as Washington and Lincoln. There are still some stubborn ones who want to do Washington and Jefferson. And there are some some odd ones around the South as well. At one point, there was a Jackson holiday that's kind of gone out of fashion. But it really does depend on the state. And I highly encourage everyone to look at their state laws because it, it is really funny to see which presidents they choose to celebrate. <laughs> it is indeed. We're talking with Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky. Uh, she is a terrific presidential historian. She's got a new book coming out in September. But uh, her previous book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, has won multiple awards and uh, has gotten just great reviews all over the place. Uh, Lindsay, l- let's talk about George Washington. Was he really that great? Well, he was, of course, human. And he was fallible and he made mistakes and he did a lot of things that we would be very uncomfortable with. However, I think it's also accurate to say that there was absolutely no one else who could have been the first president because he was the only person that had the national stature at the time, had the respect from most Americans and had demonstrated that he could be trusted with enormous power and not abuse that trust. And so he was the only person that could really bring together the nation at a moment when most states distrusted each other. Citizens had very few emotional bonds between themselves and the national government. And he really acquitted himself so admirably for those eight years, really demonstrating remarkable restraint and establishing countless precedents. You know, restraint is a lot less sexy than like winning the Civil War Mm. or winning World War II. So it's harder for us to measure But it's so important, especially when someone is in a position for the first time. And then, of course, he walked away and he didn't have to. And that was a unbelievably revolutionary thing to do in the 18th century. So I do think that he was a pretty extraordinary person in American history. Your work focuses on the cabinet, which I don't know. uh, A lot of people just always assume the cabinet was there, that it was conceived of by the uh, founding fathers. It's not entirely correct. At the time Washington became president, there was no mention of the cabinet. He essentially invented this, right? I mean, where did George Washington get the idea for a cabinet from? What was he hoping to accomplish? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the word cabinet is not in the Constitution, and that was very much by design. The uh, delegates at the Constitutional Convention explicitly rejected proposals for a cabinet because they felt like it would be creating a system too much like the British government, which they have, of course, had just fought a war to rebel against. Mm. So they were trying to not replicate that process again. And um, so there were a number of other options that were put in place for advisors for the president. And Washington did try to use those when he initially went into the presidency, because, of course, he had been at the Constitutional Convention and had a very clear sense of their expectations. However, the options that were laid out to him, they just proved to be either inefficient or not up to the task or unwieldy, or he needed multiple people's input at one time. And so what he ended up doing was basically copying and pasting the practices that he had used in his councils of war during the revolution as commander in chief of the Continental Army, 
directly into the executive branch. And he brought together the department secretaries to discuss, to debate, to build consensus, to get advice. And he had really intentionally surrounded himself with smart, experienced, knowledgeable men who knew things that he didn't. And he sought out their guidance in moments of, you know, really constitutional questions or unprecedented challenges. As far as vetoes go, I think most modern Americans just view vetoes as something a president does when they don't agree with a law that Congress passed. That's not how George Washington viewed the practice of a veto, though, is it? That's right. So he was very sparing in his use of veto. He was actually quite deferential to constitutional authority, or excuse me, to congressional authority, because he believes in the power sharing arrangement that the Constitution had laid out. And so he only vetoed things when he felt like they had not fully comprehended what the Constitution intended, or it didn't necessarily make sense. He wasn't trying to reject the course of action, but to help them refine the language or to come up with a more sensible plan. So, for example, his first veto was right after Congress had taken the first census, and they were trying to apportion representation for the states and to figure out how to do that. And that wasn't really described in detail in the Constitution. And so they had come up with a few different mathematical equations. And he felt like the one that they chose was not particularly clear and not particularly fair. And so he vetoed it and he suggested an alternative and they adopted that alternative and then passed the bill and he signed it. The you alluded to George Washington's decision not to run again. Obviously, there were no term limits in those days. He could have easily run for a third term and gotten elected probably unanimously again. Uh, Two part question. One, why did Washington choose not to run for a third term? And was this really that rare at the time? I think it was King George III that said if he really stepped away from power, he would be the greatest man who'd ever lived. How unusual was this for a, a popular leader of a republic or any sort of a country to voluntarily relinquish power? Yeah, great questions and so important, I think, on President's Day, especially for us to think about. So Washington stepped away for a couple of reasons. First, he was tired. He had been in public service for decades. He was a little grouchy about some of the criticism he was starting to receive. He wanted to be home at Mount Vernon, and he was done with it. And so there was no doubt that there were definitely personal reasons behind that decision. But he also understood that he needed to encourage his fellow Americans to see the presidency, to begin the process of electing another president, to have the first transition of power. They needed to have all that take place, both in a planned way. So when he was alive and it was a scheduled election as opposed to him dying suddenly, but also if they could have that happen while he was alive, then he would be able to grant a lot of his legitimacy to that process. And his enormous prestige would give a lot of calm and would help Americans feel comfortable with that process. And so he wanted it to happen while he was alive and while he was present and while he could participate. And that was a huge, huge choice and a huge decision. And I think the reason it was so huge is because it really was a radical act. At this point, when we're thinking about what's happening in American history, Napoleon comes onto the scene just a few years later in France. This is the time of military dictatorships and kings and queens that serve for the duration of their lives. 
the most recent transition that Americans were familiar with was the French Revolution, which was, of course, characterized by guillotines and blood running through mm-hmm. the streets. And so people just didn't, this just wasn't how it was done. Because I think, you know, there there is a certain human quality that if you are a person in power, you tend to think that you're the only one in power that can do it. And Washington surely could have been tempted to feel that way. But he really pushed back on that impetus. And that was very rare in the 18th century. In George Washington's farewell address, he issues a couple of warnings to the country, a couple of pieces of advice. One was to stay out of the affairs of Europe. That piece of advice, America largely heeded for about a century. But the other piece of advice was almost immediately ignored, which was to not form political parties so that the United States would not boil down to the factionalism, which he had seen other countries getting bogged down with and which we're kind of experiencing today, where everything, including what day of the week it is, seems to be defined by whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Given the fact that Washington was so popular and he did have this larger than life persona, why didn't Americans and other American policymakers heed his warnings about avoiding political parties? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think there are a couple of important nuances to his advice. His, his big concern was that Americans would forget how much they had in common with each other. And they would look at their political differences or their affiliations or their affection for foreign nations and allow those identities or those emotional ties to take precedence. And so I think what happened after he issued his farewell address and then, you know, as he went into retirement and he died, there was a real sense that the Republic was very fragile. We, of course, we know that it survived. We know that it's still here 200 years later. We know that, you know, the experiment worked, but they didn't know that. They didn't know what was going to come next. And there was a real sense that any misstep would be the last one, would be fatal. Because, of course, the Constitution and this federal government was their second chance. They had already had the Articles of Confederation and they had failed. And most nations don't get second chances. And so they were just so anxious that one misstep would completely tear everything apart. And so when they looked at their political opponents, they started to see them as mortal enemies. They saw them as fatal to the future of the nation. And so rather than it just being a disagreement over policy or debating what was the right you know, taxation policy or what was the right foreign policy, it became this person is a threat to the future mm. of the nation. And it allowed them to override those similarities that they have may have shared with those differences. In September, you've got a new book coming out about John Adams. It's called Making the Presidency, John Adams and the Precedents that Forged the Republic. I'm looking forward to reading it uh, in September and then hopefully having you come back to talk about it. But um, let me ask you a little bit about the Adams-Washington relationship. On a personal level, what was their relationship like? Were they friends? Were they friendly? And on a professional and a political level, I know that George Washington answered the call from President Adams to come back into service when it looked like there was a possibility of war and to take charge of the military again. That's a chapter of Washington's life and of Adams' presidency that very rarely gets mentioned. I'm wondering if you could speak to both of those. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much. And I'd love to come back to talk about it. And, um, you know, their relationship is a really interesting one because I think that you can't pick 
two white dudes from the 1790s that would have been more different in both <laughs> their personality and their background and how they comported themselves. They, I think, both had a great deal of respect for one another. They recognized and appreciated their sacrifices and their commitment to the nation, but they were never particularly close. So they had worked together in the Continental Congress. John Adams was actually instrumental in getting Washington appointed as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. But he had then been a little bit critical of Washington's leadership at various points during the war, and Washington had never really forgotten or forgiven the, that criticism. Um, and then John Adams later in his career felt like his diplomatic service wasn't really appreciated in the same way that the military service was. And so he was sometimes a little bit resentful about that. Professionally, when John Adams was elected as the first vice president and Washington was elected as the first president, initially, I think John Adams really expected to play a role. And Washington did ask him for some advice in the first couple of weeks. But then that relationship pretty quickly cooled because John Adams had taken a relatively unpopular position on what the president should be called. He preferred a more um, sort of outlandish title akin to what might be found in the courts in Europe, because that was what he was used to. And he was worried that foreign dignitaries would come to the United States and think that it was sort of like this little bumpkin nation with, you know, governments and people that weren't worthy of respect. And Washington really preferred a much more simple title. And I think that he sort of lost trust in some of John Adams' political judgment. And so he never invited John Adams to a cabinet meeting. He didn't really ask for his advice. Mm -hmm. They did socialize professionally, but they were not close. And in fact, in 1796, right as Washington was sort of deciding he was going to retire, he did have an in-depth conversation with Adams. And Adams wrote in a letter back to his wife that it was the first time they had talked in depth in decades, which is a wow. pretty remarkable statement. Absolutely. Um, in terms of the chapter that comes later, you're right. It's not really discussed. And I actually think it's one of the low points of Washington's professional service and his commitment to the nation because he had been so intentional about being deferential to civilian control over the military as both uh, the commander in chief of the Continental Army and then when he was president himself. And he almost threatened to really undo that by not respecting Adams' authority over the military when he came back. Hmm. So that chapter is something that I'm definitely hoping to bring to light a little bit more because I think it's really important. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that Adams book. Would you say that uh, Adams as a president, not as a founding father or as you know, a, a key player in the American Republic, but as a president, do you think he's underrated? I do think he's underrated. Um, his presidency tends to get short shrift, partly because of who he's sandwiched between. When you're between Washington and Jefferson, it's sort of easy to get lost in the fray, <laughs> but also because he did have such a long, distinguished career. It's hard to sometimes choose from his moments. But he knew that whoever came after Washington was going to have a terrible time. Anyone was going to fall short after Washington. And yet he did it anyway. And he really took a number of decisive steps to protect executive authority from threats from his cabinet, to ensure peace for the nation with France, and then, of course, to ensure the peaceful transfer of power. He lost the election and he went home. And that is something that we have mm. come to expect from our president. But again, that was also a revolutionary act.
Uh, talking with Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky, her book, uh, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Lindsay, I know it's late uh, and I'll let you go to bed in a, in a minute. Let me just ask you, though, for people that are going to be in the line at a mattress sale today for George Washington's birthday and they find themselves in the midst of a sudden conversation with a friend or even a stranger about George Washington and his presidency, give folks a little known fact about George Washington that does not involve his teeth or chopping down cherry trees? Oh, gosh. Um, Okay. He was a huge dog lover. He loved dogs and he had great names for them. His biggest and most favorite hound was named Vulcan after the god and his spaniel that he liked the best was named Sweet Lips, which I think is hilarious. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and finally, I'll end with this. One of the things that whatever political party that is not in power tends to do is whenever the president, whoever the president is, Biden, Trump, Obama, Bush, whatever the president tries to do that they believe is a usurpation of congressional authority, usually involving some executive order or executive action, they say, oh, this is the president trying to become a monarch. It does seem that the 21st century president president is a much more powerful position than the 18th century president. Assuming you agree with that analysis, and you know, I'm not a historian, I'm just somebody that's interested in this stuff, but assuming you agree with that, why did that happen and when did that happen? When did the imperial presidency become so imperial? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question, one I think that we as all Americans need to think about. So I do think that the 18th century, at least Washington and Adams, were more powerful than we think that they were because they were in office all the time, whereas Congress was often in recess and tended to be in recess when anything interesting happened, which gave the president a whole lot of authority to take action decisively. However, I think that the modern presidency that we think of with so much authority over so many aspects of our lives really started um, in the New Deal World War II era. And partly that was because there were these insane crises that had never been faced, a huge Great Depression and then World War II and new federal agencies to try and manage some of the resources that the government was providing to people. But there was also a sense that Congress was increasingly ineffective and a president was effective. A a president could take quick action. A president could make decisions. It's easier for one person to call the shots. And Congress has actually ceded a lot of that authority. They like to, you know, quibble with it when it suits them, but they tend not to participate in the legislative process. They tend not to get things done, and they tend not to exercise a whole lot of actual constructive Mm -hmm. oversight. And in doing so, they've really ceded a lot of that authority to the president. So it's really, I think, a two-way process that we would have to encourage both sides to participate in in order to restore some semblance of balance that was expected. Dr. Lindsay Shravinsky, I really appreciate the conversation. I hope people both check out your George Washington book, The Cabinet, George Washington, and the Creation of an American Institution. And then uh, come September, I hope they check out Making the Presidency, John Adams and the Precedents that Forged the Republic. I'm looking forward to checking it out myself. And hopefully, as I said, we could chat again in the fall. That would be great. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Happy Washington's birthday observed. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 
other side at midnight with Frank Morano. top of the hour. This is Runaway by Jefferson Starship. This was a birthday bumper music selection from Sophia Pika. Yesterday was her birthday. Sophia is one of our greatest listeners. She's been a listener from the very beginning. She's the one, if memory serves, that sent me these great tab glasses that I have. And I actually had a can of tab over the weekend because we had all the neighbors over and I was making drinks for everybody and my wife had a drink. And I, of course, am on the wagon for Lent. So I figure, you know, I have maybe six cans, maybe less, maybe five cans of tab left. Let me treat myself to one. And I figured if I'm going to have a tab can, why not pour it into the glass? I'll uh, I'll post the, the photo on my Facebook page. And uh, Sophia gave me that. She's also one of our listeners, one of the many listeners that we have that needs a kidney. I'm trying to get kidneys for a bunch of our listeners. If you have a kidney that you would, and I, I know it sounds weird the way I'm saying it. But if you have a kidney that you would like to give away, I there are a lot of folks that could use it. So far, I think two people have written to me that they want to give them away. I'd like to get a kidney for every one of our listeners that needs one. So email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Your influence counts. Use it.